At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, it's official. 22 months and 69 and a half billion dollars later, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard are merged. Activision CEO on the final blessing on his long-awaited deal and on saying goodbye to the business he built. I think this is a company that needed stewardship from somebody other than Brian and I, and we were very lucky. He's handing the reins to Microsoft. So what's next for gaming? I think one of the benefits of this combination is that we can take games that have been in the library for the last 30 years and actually remake them. Plus, the White House is hoping to crack down on junk fees, but we have to agree on what they are first. CFPB director Rohit Chopra is co-leading the effort. We have found, for example, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, several others, charging multiple insufficient funds fees for the same single charge. We've seen it go down by billions of dollars. Those conversations plus were on the ground in Jerusalem and we're in DC where reporter Emily Wilkins says leadership is in flux. It is not clear at this point when we are going to see a Speaker of the House. It has now been 11 days since Kevin McCarthy was ousted. It's Friday, October 13th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. Let's get to the latest right now in Israel with the Hamas war. Israel told the United Nations overnight that the entire population of northern Gaza, which is more than a million people, should relocate to the south within 24 hours. NBC's Kelly Kobiea joins us right now with more. She is there at this point and has been monitoring everything. And Kelly, what can you tell us? Yeah, Becky, good morning. That order came at about 7 o'clock early hours of the morning here local time. So it's been in effect now uh, for several hours. Uh, and what you're seeing in Gaza is families trying to find any way to get out of the north, to get out of Gaza City and other places in the north and, and head south. The problem, from what we understand from our people on the ground, is that there simply aren't enough taxis to carry all of the population of Gaza uh, in the north down to the southern part of the Strip. 1.1 million people live in that part of Gaza. It is also home to the Strip's largest hospital, Shifa Hospital, where people have been taking refuge over the past several days and where many people also have been getting treatment after the almost constant bombardment by the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, the United Nations has asked for, has called on Israel to rescind that order, uh, saying that this could cause a humanitarian catastrophe with people 
on the road, heading south, those who are able, and then with no place to stay. Uh, Israel rejecting that, not, not, not backing down at all uh, with those, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops amassed at the border and all indications that uh, some sort of ground offensive is imminent. Uh, defense officials here in Israel have said that they are preparing for a ground offensive into Gaza, although the government has not yet ordered it. Also today, uh, more action on the diplomatic front. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with King Abdullah of Jordan today, as well as Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president. We are still waiting on a readout from the U.S. side, but uh, the Palestinian president uh, telling uh, the Palestinian media that there has to be a humanitarian corridor in Gaza to allow Palestinians to leave safely. Becky. Kelly, thank you. That is NBC's Kelly Kobiea. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise dropping out of the race for speaker. Emily Wilkins joins us right now with more. And Emily, this has gotten stranger and stranger. Becky, it is just a completely unprecedented territory, and we've somehow got more into unprecedented territory as the week has gone on. Well, yes, 24 hours after he secured the nomination from his party, Steve Scalise has dropped out of the race for House Speaker last night after it became clear that he cannot get to that magic number of 217. Republicans are now scrambling to figure out what comes next. Scalise gave a warning to his fellow Republicans who blocked his nomination. There are some folks that really need to look in the mirror over the next couple of days and decide, are we going to get it back on track? Are they going to try to pursue their own agenda? You can't do both. A lot of Republicans do still want to see Jim Jordan run for speaker, but several members have already come out said they will never be able to vote for Jordan. This is how Congressman Mark Alford responded last night after a Republican meeting when asked if Jordan could be the nominee. I have no earthly idea. I'm a freshman caught up in this maelstrom. We're a ship that doesn't have a rudder right now, and I'm thoroughly disappointed in the process. And I just pray to God that we find something. Some Republicans are already suggesting other options if Jordan can't reach 217. Some are putting forward the names of lawmakers, including Kevin Hearn or Tom Emmer. Now, some are pushing to give Patrick McHenry, who's currently the Speaker pro tem, the ability to temporarily pass legislation. House Republicans are going to meet this morning to figure out next steps. But, Becky, it is not clear at this point when we are going to see a Speaker of the House. It has now been 11 days since Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Yeah, and it's not like there's nothing going on the war in the world that is demanding attention at the moment. Look, I, just, I've got to just assume just a shutdown and a war. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to assume that there is pretty significant pressure coming, even on both parties, to try and reach something to figure out to to, to break a logjam here. Um, what happens next? Is there is the idea of a bipartisan situation one that that works, or is it more likely that? Maybe they get together and decide that on a temporary basis, they will just make sure that legislation can make its way through the House. Well, a Democratic House leader, Hakeem Jeffries, has reached out with a bit of an olive branch towards Republicans, said, hey, you know, we can find a way to come together. But for a lot of Republicans, they still want to work this out internally. They're absolutely not ready to work with Democrats. 
That said, there are some discussions beginning to happen among certain more moderate Republicans, Republicans who were elected from districts that supported Biden and who are really worried that come 2024, Republicans will lose control of the House if they can't get their act together on speaker. So I think a lot of possibilities right now. We hope to learn more a little bit later this morning after the meeting what direction Republicans are going to be taking. Emily, Hakeem Jeffries reached out with an knowledge branch to say we can work together. What, what was the price tag that came with that? What do they want in return? That's a, that is a great question. That's something that Republicans have told me that some of them want to hear a little bit more. But at this point, Jeffries has left it pretty vague. And that's one thing that we're seeing a lot of these ideas that have come up. Hey, maybe we can make Patrick McHenry temporarily have the ability to pass legislation. How would that work? Would that be legal? Do you need to get a lawyer involved? Again, it's just a lot of unprecedented territory. It's a lot of possibilities. But at this point, it seems like Republicans are going to try and move forward with Jordan. They might try and move forward with someone else, but you have all these other ideas percolating. If they can't come to an agreement within the next week or so, remember the Senate gets back next week. Biden said he was going to send his request on funding for Israel next week. So there's already pressure on House Republicans. That's only going to amp up. Emily, thank you very much. Billionaire investor Lee Cooperman calls this a stock picker's market. We had the chance to speak with him at CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit yesterday, where he told us that he is not interested in buying stock market benchmarks like the S&P 500. He says valuations at this point are too high. He thinks that the market's underestimating the risk of a financial crisis, or a fiscal crisis, I should say. He also called out his least favorite part of the market right now. My least favorite would be long-term bonds. I don't think bonds with a long duration make any sense, given what's going on in the world. You know, and uh, I think interest rates will likely go higher. And when interest rates go higher, bond prices drop. And I would not be a buyer of bonds until we got to over 5 percent. We're going to take a closer look at the energy sector. That's a place where Cooperman says that he is finding some value. And Andrew, we've spoken with Cooperman a lot of times. At this point, he has about 20% of his portfolio in energy stocks. Everything that happened with ExxonMobil, the purchase of Pioneer earlier this week, makes him think that there is consolidation coming. And he's buying ahead of that. Interesting. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, what are junk fees? The White House has an idea and they're cracking down. One of the officials leading the charge, CFPB Director Rohit Chopra. We just had a family come in to say that they went to a hotel and it was never disclosed the entire time, but they had a resort fee of about $100 for their stay. That's the type of thing that this proposed rule will help fix. We'll be right back. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. 
today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is working with President Biden to ban those so-called junk fees. They call the hidden fees unavoidable, surprise, excessive and unnecessary. And joining us right now is Rohit Chopra, who is the director of the CFPB. And Rohit, thank you for being here today. Thanks for being here. All right, junk fees, I, I think it's a hard thing to find anybody who really wants to defend these fees. It, it, it's sneaky stuff. It's ways of trying to get consumers to pay more. What's the pushback that you've gotten from anybody, if, well, if at all? M- many of the firms have actually built a business model and their whole pricing models on how to obscure the upfront costs. Everyone wants to advertise it as free, but there always is something on the back end. So. What we're doing is taking a series of steps, particularly in banking, to make sure that those fees you know, are history. We're also, we see an FTC proposed rule to have all in pricing and no more junk fees across the economy. And I think it will make a big difference for people by the tune of billions of dollars. What, what are the, the fees that you think of as junk fees? Because I think of things on my cell phone, like a, a bunch of little charges at the bottom, that you know, service charges, blah, 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 whatever. Not that I little. It's just like a third of the bill. Right. It I, is. I think of it with airline seats, you know, getting charged to, to sit with your family or, you know, there, there's the airline tickets I, I think of as maybe being one of the biggest issues I run into these things with. Where, where well, else? I consider it really any type of worthless service or or a service that really doesn't cost anything at all to provide, or really when it's pushed on some sort of captive consumer who has no real choice. You know, we've actually recovered hundreds of millions of dollars just in the last few months, and we have found so many. One, a bank was charging a paper statement fee every month. They weren't even printing it or mailing it. So a lot of this is going to happen through law enforcement. We've taken but a big wait, that action. That just sounds like flat-out fraud. I can understand a bank charging me more if I want that statement sent home to me every month because yeah, but, it, uh, it is more expensive than just having me check it online. Th- this is another interesting part about what we're seeing in junk fees is that sometimes they're not even providing the alleged service. But is it wrong all. for them to charge a fee if they're sending it home? Because that, it does well, cost sure, money. No, that, uh, yeah, if you're getting some legitimate extra service, right. you know, that may be something. But we also want to look about how is it priced? Is it through the competitive market or are they just pushing it on you or hiding is it? Is the goal to remove the fees and effectively lower prices for American consumers? Is the goal to just make the whole process more transparent so that people know up front this is what the this is what the airplane fee costs and by the way you can't bring a bag on if or if you want to bring a bag on it's going to cost this much more? Is that what well, where, where, what's the sort of philosophically yeah. In terms of how you think about approaching this, is it is it ultimately to try to lower the fees for American families, or is it ultimately to just make it more transparent? Well, I think, or you th- may think that they might have the same effect on they, each they other. They do in many ways. We've already seen it being reduced by billions just in banking. I think here's the big picture: we want firms competing by providing great products, great services at a competitive price. We don't want them innovating on how they can actually cheat people or trick people. So if I'm an investor and I'm looking at firms today, especially in banking, I'm looking at that fee revenue and saying, is it going to be sustainable over the long run? And are we going to have a system 
that is really just going to allow. Okay, that, that sounds really good, but back to Andrew's point, I'm not sure that I understand in reality how it plays out. Does that mean that the airlines can't charge you for extra bags? I mean, I, I know that if I bring a bag, I'm going to have to pay 35 bucks for the first one and 50 bucks for the second. Or if it's over you know, 50 pounds, you're going to have to pay the additional surge right. charge that comes yeah. with that. And if I'm a member of their, their loyalty program, I'm not going to have to pay any of those things. So, so part of it is getting rid of the hidden part. You want it to be very, very upfront. But what's hidden about that? I know all that stuff. Well, in many cases you do, but I find many scenarios, and we've gotten thousands of complaints where it's actually tacked in on the very end. We just had a family come in to say that they went to a hotel and it was never disclosed the entire time, but they had a resort fee of about $100 for their stay at the desk. You know, that's the type of thing that this proposed rule will help fix. Meaning you can't have the resort fees or you can't have it without advertising it. Well, you have to show it all in. You have to actually I know, but that, say that, that, you to can't. Me, that's, a, that's a different, I, it, on the one hand, I understand getting hit late with a fee that you didn't know was coming. It was, and that, and, or for a service that you were never provided with. That sounds very different than having a business that is built around fees that a lot of these companies do. Is it going to be illegal to have those fees? Well, it is all it has a, to be wrapped into the So the Becky, price is it a legitimate service or is it not? So I'll, I'll share with you. We have found, for example, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, several others, charging multiple insufficient funds fees for the same single charge. We have seen them reordering the transaction so that they can trigger three overdraft fees instead of one. But overdraft, so, overdraft fees are legitimate. You just can't do multiple charges on yeah, those. Well, you, have to, you have to do it in a fair and transparent way. So sometimes it's about showing and disclosing, but sometimes it's the way you're actually doing it behind the scenes. And the truth is, when how often does that happen? Because I, I, I would be surprised if these banks. Well, were we've doing seen it, it go down by billions of dollars, and I think what happens is, they start seeing their competitors doing it, mm -hmm. and they see regulators who have sometimes been right. asleep at the switch, and then it becomes a race to the bottom, and that's exactly what, what banks. We have to what reverse. in particular on that on that kind of thing? What, what banks are you looking at? Well, that? we're not going to disclose what our enforcement investigations right. are, but we've done big actions against Wells Fargo, against Bank of America, and against Regions Bank recently. That has totaled hundreds of millions of dollars. And we have just released some analysis showing that banks are actually cutting those insufficient funds fees by about $2 billion because they really see this is not even a legitimate service. Rohit, what, what happens with the Supreme Court ruling looking at the CFPB? Because when I talk to people about this and kind of look through it, they say just the funding mechanism from Congress is the big question. That The way it was originally set up, you get your funding from the Federal Reserve, not by going through the purse strings of Congress. And that's what the Supreme Court is looking at. Are you allowed to get funding for an agency without going through Congress? Well, the Solicitor General made her argument before the Supreme Court. I think many people are wondering if the CFPB is at risk, then, then the Fed would be as well. I think if you look at our history, we have had a situation where Congress decides how agencies are funded. Mortgage lenders across the country are worried that if all of the CFPB's rules are invalidated, how are they going right. to know how to make a loan legally? It's a more complicated conversation. We're out of time right now, but thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And by the way, to take your point, Becky, mm -hmm. what we need is the hidden fees on healthcare services. Yeah. That's what we really need. Coming up on Squawk Pod, it's 
finally official. $69.5 billion, 22 months, and two tech and gaming giants becoming one. Microsoft and Activision Blizzard are finally merged. Activision CEO Bobby Kotick in his first interview as the ink dries. His takeaways from the long, long process with UK regulators. I was incredibly impressed every step of the way. They were thoughtful, they were deliberate, and could we have done some things differently? Possibly, but we got to a good result. And what now? When you look at the legacy of CEOs is how well do companies do once the founders and the CEOs leave? And I think this company is really set up for great success in the future. We'll be right back. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square on a Friday morning. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off. The UK's top competition watchdog giving the green light to Microsoft's proposed $69 billion takeover bid of Activision Blizzard. It removes that last major hurdle for the deal to close. In a statement, the regulator said the new deal would stop Microsoft from locking up competition in cloud gaming and preserve competitive prices and services for UK cloud gaming customers. Now, in a post on X, Microsoft's vice chair, Brad Smith, said, quote, we're grateful for the CMA's thorough review and decision today. We've now crossed the final regulatory hurdle to close this acquisition, which we believe will benefit players in the gaming industry worldwide. And this has been uh, one for the books, a saga uh, <laughs> that I don't think anyone was anticipating would go on this long. Maybe, maybe somebody did, but given, given all the regulatory maybe hurdles, maybe the FTC, uh, maybe the FTC, but and maybe the CMA. And yeah. there were real questions about whether regulators would ultimately approve it and what would happen. But um, here I think we it's are. Been Twenty-two months, um, long time coming. Lots of questions about what this means, because at this point, just about every deal is going to get questioned by the FTC or the DOJ. Right. Um, this was the first one. Microsoft took this extreme step of coming out at the beginning and saying, we're going to do whatever it takes. We'll work with the regulators and make this happen. And it didn't seem to actually appease the regulators at all. It didn't make things happen. Although the CMA, that's a, that's a huge deal. There right. is no one to appeal to at the CMA. If they right. decide they don't like a deal, it doesn't happen. So and this when was that the first, case of the company. Right. And when that first decision yeah. came out, I think yeah. there was an expectation, well, this is over because who, yeah. who do you, you were going to appeal to yourself, basically. How's this going to work? So Somehow they um, did it. Somehow they did it. <laughs> Joining us on set live here, I said the soap opera has been going on. This is the finale. Uh, Bobby Kotick is here, the CEO of Activision Blizzard. We should say congratulations because we've been talking about this for quite some time with you a number of times at this table before. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a little hard to celebrate anything right now, given all the events in the Middle East, but you know, especially in our business where our responsibility is to bring joy and fun to people around the world. Um, this has been 22 months in the making, uh, maybe more now. I just want you to take back to the, to the beginning. If, if you had known that this is what was going to happen, would have you done it? Well, we were concerned about 
what the regulatory climate would be, but we never thought that there was any you know, real reason that was legitimate why these two companies couldn't combine. There's so many competitors that are bigger, more successful, with more advantages. And so I think we ultimately always believed that just on the merits of the transaction that it would get through. But given just two things, actually, how strong your business has uh, remained um, and the length of time of this whole process um, and all the commotion, frankly, even before you did this deal, which I think had, had actually hit the stock um, about what was happening inside the company. Do you ever go back to yourself and say, you know what, maybe we should have, we, we should have we stuck it out and just kept, kept doing this ourselves? No, I think there were a lot of great reasons. I mean, we weren't looking to sell the company, but as we started to see how difficult it was going to be to find the type of specialized talent in AI and machine learning, you know, realizing that we're competing against big companies like ByteDance and Tencent and uh, Sony, Nintendo. As, you know, once Satya and Phil had made the phone call and we started to really think about how much of an advantage it would be to be a part of Microsoft, I, I don't think after that we've ever thought that it was anything other than a good for idea. For all the CEOs who are watching you now, what is the lesson of the last 22 months? For, for, not just for you personally and you think for everybody else. Because so, a lot of people are wondering, should I, should I pull the trigger on a, on a deal? And am I going to go and have the same, even if I have the same fate, meaning I ultimately get to the finish line, is it worth it? So I would say, you know, one of the things that I, I over the last 20 some odd months that I've seen is Microsoft with Satya Nadella and Brad Smith, they have created a company that really is about partnership. And a lot of people say that, but they've operationalized it at scale. And so having that skill and ability to be able to understand whether it's a regulator or labor or a workforce or a corporate partner, really being able to embrace the idea of partnership and actually being able to listen and understand and figure out how to conciliate and mediate, they do better than any company I've ever seen. What's it going to mean with this new combination? You talked about AI and how that works into gaming. And I've even heard you talk about maybe the Neuralink uh, situation, which I have find baffling, the idea that people are going to control the video games in their head with the Neuralink. I think that's a long way off. But talk about what you do see for the future. Yeah, I think it's a long way off. But I think, you know, look, we have roughly 350 million customers today. There are billions and billions more people who we would love to see play our games. I think one of the benefits of this combination is that we can take games that have been in the library for the last 30 years and actually remake them. I think AI is going to make games more accessible. I think it's going to make the creation of things like art and animation uh, better. I think on phones in particular that have these AI processors, you're going to see richer, deeper experiences, so that'll broaden the audience more. I have one more regulatory question that I want to actually Real quickly, the deal is official. Microsoft is saying right now. The uh, Microsoft saying the deal is official, so it's, it's well, you closed. Heard, you heard it here first. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the checks are going to clear, uh, probably right now. I just want to read you this, though, because it's, it, this is what the CMA said today. So they approved the deal, which, by the way, is something they rarely do after, after rejecting a deal because you're effectively coming back to the same people. But this is what they did say. They said businesses and their advisors should be in no doubt that the tactics employed by Microsoft are no way to engage with the CMA. Microsoft had the chance to restructure during our initial investigation, but instead continued to insist on a package of measures that we told them simply wouldn't work. Dragging out proceedings in this way only wastes time and money. I'm, 
just curious what your reaction is. You've been living inside the, the, the bubble of this the entire time. You know what I would say is, um, had, had we been able to better understand what the right structural remedies would have been, we, we might have been able to propose them sooner, but it was a learning process. And they were very thoughtful and they were very deliberate. And I think there's a legitimate reason. The UK is a really important country when it comes to gaming. It's a unique place. You have extraordinary high quality K through 12 education. You have creative talent. You have technical talent. You have you know, the home of European AI. You have companies like Sinclair, the BBC that pioneered computers. So you could understand why they were really careful and cautious about what the future of gaming and competition would be in their market. And I have to say, I was incredibly impressed every step of the way. They were thoughtful, they were deliberate, and could we have done some things differently? Possibly, but we got to a good result. Do the concessions make it a less competitive company? No, look, uh, we've, they've given up a lot, um, but I think it will encourage competition. And you know, this gets back to the willingness of Microsoft to engage and listen and respond appropriately to the concerns of government. And I think they did that in the EU, and I think they did that in the UK. And not it, back to your original right. question, not many companies are, really have the patience and the resolve and the willingness to actually do the things that are in the best interest of both government and a company. Bobby, I want to go back a little bit because this company has been your baby. You go back to 1990 when you and Brian Kelly first bought a 25% stake of Activision that was in bankruptcy, on the verge of bankruptcy. You bought that 25% stake for $440,000. You've been the CEO since 1991. So we're talking 32 years later, what has happened? You are going to do what now? Like what, what happened with building this company and what do you do next? Look, the, the most gratifying thing for me has been having access to the most extraordinarily talented people over all this time. And I think the, the reason why we've been so successful has been that, you know, focus on making sure we attract the most capable people in our industry and in the world. And that's been the secret to the success. So for the people who work at our company, they're now gonna have an opportunity to get access to new resources and partner with different types of talent. And, you know, I think a big part of when you look at the legacy of CEOs is how well do companies do once the founders and the CEOs leave? And I think this company is really set up for great success in the future. You're a Microsoft employee now. Have you ever been an employee anywhere? Well, I was technically an employee of Vivendi for the time that oh, the, Vivendi the, controlled the, the that. company. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm only going to do this for a short time. My commitment is making sure the integration goes smoothly. And, you know, Phil Spencer, who leads Xbox, is an exceptional executive. If I had to pick a successor, I couldn't pick a better person. And, you know, he is a enthusiastic gamer. He, he's just a really fantastic leader. And I think that their team is going to do a great job. And all of our people are staying, you know, for the most part, I think uh, they're inheriting a really, really talented group of people. We were talking during the commercial break, just how it feels like, you know, how it feels to, to hand over something like this in this way on an emotional basis. Because we have a lot of CEOs, founders who watch, who watch the show, 
who think, by the way, oftentimes they think this is the, the, the greatest moment. It may very well be the greatest moment. But I also know, you know, a year later, they say, oh, I, it's, so, it's so uncomfortable. I thought I had this thing. What do I do? How, how have you been thinking about that? Because I know you've been thinking about it. You've had two years to think about it. Oh, I'm not one of those people that looks backward. I look forward. But um, I think, you know, you're, you always have some, um, you know, remorse for you th think about, well, you know, what could I have done if I continued to run the company? But I think I'd gotten to the place where I realized that I think this is a company that needed stewardship from somebody other than Brian and I. And we were very lucky. You know, we weren't looking to sell the company when Satya and Phil called. It made a lot of sense. And so I, um, I'm excited about the next chapter. Right. You know, I haven't really had a chance to... What is that going to be? Well, you know, it's funny. I haven't really had a chance to focus on my family philanthropy. And when I look at the world right now, and you think about the things that you can have an impact on, I think K through 12 education in America is something that I really care deeply about. And I think AI and machine learning are going to have a big impact on our ability to educate kids better. Um, right now, I think hate and intolerance is something that you know, needs to be fought. And I think that supporting those types of organizations, initiatives, I'm worried about the tensions between the US and China. And so figuring out how to help um, do a better job of us connecting, engaging with China is important. And then, you know, one thing I think, um, we've seen a lot of loss of trust in government institutions. And a lot of it has come from corruption that really needs to be rooted out and there aren't enough effective resources with the complexities of government today. And so I think you know, helping support organizations and institutions that actually protect the trust of institutions is something that I think will be interesting for me. What do you think the gaming industry and media landscape look like in a couple of years from now? I mean, given this regulatory environment, a lot of the big media companies, who, by the way, we all thought we were ultimately going to buy game companies at some point, haven't. And you know, do they eventually? Do you think they merge? Do you think that this gives, gives uh, some of them confidence to do a deal? Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that you've seen structurally is that this, you know, uh, race to streaming has created economics that defy what actually creates value. And <laughs> That's you, a fancy way of saying bad economics, right? right? Well, I mean... You, yeah, you, you, you way, both know you very that's well. True? That by the way, do you think that's true of gaming? So my kids, by the way, now we have the Xbox uh, Pass, which allows you to get on, all, you know, for, I don't know, we pay 14 bucks a month. I don't know what the, what the number is, but something like that. Is that, a, is that better economics or worse economics? Because we used to go and buy a DVD that costs us 70 bucks each time. Well, games are slightly different because they have so many different models. You know, the bulk of our games are played for free. And so... Um, the free-to-play model builds big communities of gamers. I think that will continue. But then you have premium content you can sell, seasonal content you can sell, subscriptions like our World right. of Warcraft is a subscription game. So I think gaming has a lot of flexibility in the business model. In media, there was a lot of flexibility in the business model, but almost every area of distribution, you saw a decline in the value. And so... If you're a fundamental thinker and, you know, if you're like us, where we're, you know, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett disciples, 
you know that return on invested capital is the only objective measure of the value of a business. And so I think those companies are going to struggle for a while to figure out how do they create optimized business models. Bobby, I want to thank you very much for joining us on this very important day. Um, the deal official right now, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard um, inking that deal and having it go through. We want to thank you for your time today. Bobby thank Kota. you guys for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. That's the podcast for today and for the week. Thank you for tuning in on this very busy, very heavy news week. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC, starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. You can always get the smartest takes and analysis from that TV broadcast right here on Squawk Pod, as long as you follow us wherever you're listening to your podcast now. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a safe and restful weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.